and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Clark Neely, Vice President for Criminal Justice at the Cato Institute. We will discuss his article, Jury Empowerment as an Antidote to Coercive Plea Bargaining, which is published in the Federal Sentencing Reporter, as well as his work on criminal justice reform. So welcome to the show, Clark. Thanks so much. I'm a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I'm really glad to have you on. As you know, I've been following your work for a long time with Institute of Justice and now with the Cato Institute, and I've always admired your commitment to criminal justice-related issues and reform in that area, and it was a real pleasure to read this new and <laughs> very provocative and in some ways, um, uh, I think, a little bit surprising article. Thanks. <laughs> so um, for listeners who might not be so familiar with criminal justice related issues, I wonder if you could start by talking a little bit about why plea bargaining is so common, right? I mean, we have this idea that when people are charged with a crime, there's a trial and the jury deliberates, et cetera, et cetera, kind of 12 angry men type vision of the criminal justice system. But it, it seems like that's not really what's going on most of the time. Well, that's exactly right. Uh, there are two ways, basically, to adjudicate criminal charges, at least in this country. Uh, one is the constitutionally prescribed mechanism of a jury trial um, before you know twelve uh, citizens drawn from your community. The other way is for uh, a person to simply plead guilty uh, and avoid the trial, essentially waive their right right to a trial and just plead guilty. Um, the uh, and that that has become the dominant uh, uh, mechanism for adjudicating criminal charges in America today. The plea bargain. Uh, in fact, about ninety five percent of all criminal convictions today are obtained uh, through a guilty plea by the defendant. So uh, virtually everybody waives their right uh, to a jury trial. Uh, I think this is very concerning for a number of reasons. First, uh, plea bargaining was completely unknown at the founding. Uh, really didn't sort of start to gain traction until the 1800s and, and really in most places until uh, well into the late 1800s or even the, the 1900s. Uh, initially, courts uh, tended to, to look very skeptically at plea bargaining. Um, one court even described it as uh, really no different in substance from justice for sale. And sometime in the last maybe 50, 60 years, uh, the judiciary has really just pulled a complete uh, U-turn and has fully embraced uh, plea bargaining as not only a legitimate, but indeed uh, a necessary uh, uh, feature of uh, the modern criminal justice system, uh, and one without which, frankly, the, the criminal justice system could barely function. I'm not sure if that's true or not, but that's the perception of the courts. And so effectively, uh, plea bargaining has uh, virtually eliminated um, the constitutionally prescribed uh, citizen jury trial, and I think that's deeply problematic. So why did that happen? I mean, if plea bargaining was seen as sort of uncommon or even distasteful for such a long period of time, what changed to make it seem like it was appropriate or even sort of obligatory or desirable? Well, plea bargaining has a number of features that make it extraordinarily attractive uh, for the government and particularly for prosecutors. Uh, compared to a jury trial, plea bargaining is uh, much less expensive. It's uh, much more convenient. Prosecutors can uh, obtain uh, far more, far greater number of convictions uh, through plea bargaining uh, than they can uh, through jury trials. Uh, again, which tend to be uh, time-consuming and expensive. But perhaps the most attractive feature 
from a prosecutor's standpoint uh, is that plea bargaining is certain, whereas jury trials are risky. And so uh, prosecutors have, as we'll, we'll get to no doubt later in the, in the show, um, figured out how to deploy a number of extraordinarily uh, powerful levers uh, that when uh, applied in combination uh, have proven successful in, in getting virtually uh, all criminal defendants or not, not every single one, but the vast majority of criminal defendants uh, to forego their right to a jury trial and simply confess their own guilt. Um, that strikes me as extraordinarily concerning. Uh, the um, history is, is replete with regimes that have excelled in the extraction of confessions from their own citizens. Uh, it's, a, it's not a good club. It's not one that you want to be a member of. And we are very much a member of that club. Well, were there particular legal or social or institutional changes that made plea bargaining sort of the default rather than the exception? Like, did something have to shift in our sort of legal system in order to make that possible? Or was it just kind of a gradual change over time? Yeah, there's been interesting speculation about that. Uh, so Judge Stefanos Bibas has, has written about this, and 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 as have others. Um, I would say there's there's at least three things that that people have sort of flagged. Um, one is the rise of a kind of professional uh, prosecutor and criminal defense uh, class, so that uh, instead of the old days where where this is much more sort of happenstance and sporadic, um, you've got the same people doing the same jobs, encountering the same people on the other side of these cases. So they get to know each other. They get a sense of kind of how the cases are likely to play out. It just becomes a lot easier for them to, you know, sort of uh, negotiate potential outcomes. Um, as for judges, uh, there's some there's some speculation that, or, or maybe not speculation, I should say, some um, uh, history that indicates that, that, you know, around the time of the Industrial Revolution, uh, judges' dockets began filling up with uh, tort cases for, you know, cases involving workplace injuries and things like that. And uh, judges began to have less and less time to devote to their criminal docket and were more and more interested in more efficient ways uh, of resolving uh, criminal cases on those dockets. Uh, and then a further argument is that the um, crime rate uh, began increasing and that uh, there are a number of uh, factors that might explain that. But you've got a combination of uh, alcohol prohibition uh, from 1920 to 1933, increasing immigration, urbanization and so forth. And so the argument is that, in essence, judges um, uh, sort of started to feel overwhelmed uh, by this combination of an increasing civil docket on the one hand, um, an increasing crime rate on the other and uh, these pressures, arguably, uh, and some have theorized, um, led the, uh, all of the major players in the criminal justice system uh, to sort of come together and uh, displace the jury trial with uh, plea bargaining as the default mechanism for resolving criminal charges uh, as it remains, as it, as it, as it is now and, and, and remains. So why is it then that defendants agree to plea bargains rather than going to trial. I mean, is it beneficial for defendants or are there institutional features that enable plea bargaining to be used in ways that might be unfair to criminal defendants? You know, this is one of the most important questions, I think, in all of criminal justice. And um, there are two radically different takes about this. On the one hand, if you if you talk to people who support the current system, and certainly most prosecutors do, what they will say uh, is that prosecutor, uh, uh, criminal defendants are simply being given a benefit uh, for sparing the uh, state the expense of uh, and, and inconvenience of a full-blown jury trial when there would be no point. So you commit, you know, a crime, let's say a burglary, you're looking at five years, 
uh, it's a bit of a hassle for the government to do all the things that would be necessary to uh, take that case all the way through a, a jury trial. So you agreed to plead guilty and they give you a bit of a benefit by taking a couple of years off of your sentence. Um, I think that's a very um, uh, sort of idealized characterization of the way that plea bargaining works in our system. In reality, I think it works much differently. And instead of, you know, sort of being given, um, you know, a, a consideration or an inducement of some kind, I think it's much more accurate in most cases to describe what's happening as, as naked coercion. Um, so instead of, you know, being given some modest inducement, if you'll go ahead and plead guilty, instead what happens is um, uh, prosecutors have become extraordinarily adept at applying various highly coercive levers uh, to uh, people who are are looking, or, you know, sort of on the wrong end of a, of a criminal indictment. I'll give you just one example. I read an article recently about a man in Texas who was um, wrongly accused of um, molesting a child, uh, a neighbor child. It turned out he did not do it. Uh, and um, he was offered the following deal. Uh, if you will plead guilty um, to some fairly you know, low-level way of expressing what may have happened here, then uh, the prosecutor will recommend 120 days uh, in jail and a lifetime on the sex offender registry. If you refuse that deal, then we will take you to court, and if we get a conviction, we will press for 99 years in prison. That is not remotely uh, an inducement. That is not remotely you know, some modest consideration in exchange for pleading guilty. That is outright co uh, coercion. And um, not every case is that bad, but more cases are more like that than the original you know, kind of highly idealized version that I gave. And so I think, and we can talk about what some of the other coercive levers are that prosecutors are able to apply, uh, but when you think about how valuable a jury trial is to a defendant, even a guilty defendant, uh, just going to trial and the government has lots of burdens and, and, and challenges in a criminal trial and there's lots of opportunities for their government to drop the ball and, uh, and fail to get a conviction. You think about how extraordinarily valuable a criminal jury is to both guilty and innocent defendants. The idea that almost nobody would choose to exercise that right is extraordinarily suspicious. Uh, and what I think is almost certainly going on is that most people are in fact being coerced uh, into giving up their right to a jury trial, um, not persuaded with modest inducements the way that prosecutors would have us believe. Well, so I imagine the argument from the government's perspective is that when people are accepting a plea bargain, whether or not we think it's a fair situation, that ultimately it's a guilty person accepting a plea bargain. Um, is, is that true? Uh, are, you know, and, and, and sort of how does the factual guilt or innocence of criminal defendants play into the plea bargaining decision? Well, I think this is one of the most disgraceful elements of our system. Um, and that is, it is an open, it's, it's, it's openly acknowledged that, uh, that guilty, uh, I'm sorry, factually innocent people routinely plead guilty. There's no question about it. One of the ways we know that, uh, for example, is that the Innocence Project is a nonprofit that uh, uses DNA evidence to uh, exonerate people. Um, DNA evidence is, of course, not perfect, but it's the best that we can get. It's very close to, 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 to fully reliable. And of the over 300 exonerations that the Innocence Project has obtained uh, since it's been around, 11% uh, of those uh, were people who falsely confessed to crimes that they did not commit and falsely pled guilty to crimes that they did not commit. There are a number of other sources uh, that, that support that. Uh, figure and suggest that it may even be low. So a very significant number of people who plead guilty uh, in court are, are in fact not uh, guilty. Uh, and there's an, a growing body of empirical research that shows that it's uh, actually 
far easier than you might suppose uh, to induce uh, an innocent person to plead guilty um, if you apply uh, the right levers. So we have a system that empirically we, we know for a fact routinely uh, coerces innocent people into pleading guilty. And the collective response of the judiciary and prosecutors is just to shrug their shoulders and pretend as if that doesn't happen or uh, to maybe engage in some, you know, sort of uh, pro forma hand wringing and then just go on with business as usual. Well, so I imagine that the phenomenon you described earlier of, you know, threatening someone with effectively life in prison unless they plead guilty, in which case they'll get a relatively short prison term. Uh, would be pretty coercive to a defendant and a strong inducement to plead guilty. Uh, are there other tools that prosecutors use in order to increase the attractiveness of taking a plea bargain rather than going to trial? Oh, absolutely. There's there's any number of tools that prosecutors have. One of the most powerful is, is pretrial detention. So uh, a defendant who is locked up awaiting trial uh, is in a much, much worse position than somebody who is out free uh, both because uh, being locked up in jail is extremely unpleasant and people will do almost anything to get out, uh, but also because it, it, it makes it very difficult to participate in your defense. It makes it hard to find a lawyer, makes it hard to work with that lawyer, makes it hard to find documents, phone numbers, witnesses, uh, and uh, other, uh, uh, other things that might help your defense. So um, being able to incarcerate somebody uh, pretrial is um, extraordinarily powerful uh, lever that prosecutors have, and many of them make full use of it. And are there other things that prosecutors do as well? Or, or, you know, like maybe kind of if you could talk a little bit more generally about sort of the different kinds of tools. Yeah, I mean, so the main things uh, I would say are pretrial detention, uh, uh, what we call charge stacking, uh, which is essentially charging a crime in a way that's you know sort of much worse than, than, than a, you know, fair minded assessment of what really happened so as to um, expose the a defendant to the to the highest amount of punishment possible to, to improve the prosecutor's negotiating position. Um, you can also threaten mandatory minimums. Uh, just to take one example, there's a 90, uh, 1978 Supreme Court case called Borden Kircher v. Hayes, uh, where a um, fairly low level uh, check fraud person was threatened with, well, he was looking at two to 10 years. He was offered a five year plea deal. Uh, he said he didn't want to take it. So the prosecutor said, well, in that case, I'm going to re-indict you as a habitual offender, in which case you'll be looking at a mandatory minimum of life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, and in fact, the defendant exercised his right to trial, lost, and was sentenced to prison for life. Uh, so that's among that's a very powerful tool is exposing defendants to mandatory minimums. Um, and then there are some informal tools that are really quite sorted, uh, and many prosecutors will effectively deny that this ever happens, but many criminal defense lawyers will tell you they absolutely do. And one of the most horrific ones is uh, threatening a person's uh, friends or family. So for example, uh, you're a prosecuting person, you want them to plead guilty, they won't do it. And you say something like, well, you know, your kids work for your company for a few years, maybe we'll take a look at them. Um, oh, your father owns a landscaping company. Well, do you suppose he ever fire, uh, hired an undocumented worker or, you know, uh, cut corners on his taxes? And so these kinds of overt threats to investigate and or indict family members if somebody will not take uh, a plea, um, we know that they happen. I mean, for example, it's, it's, a, it's a matter of uh, record that Monica Lewinsky began, began talking to the FBI after they threatened her mother with 25 years um, in prison. So this is 
very clearly a tool that is used sometimes, and the only question is how often. But the it's and it's not just the application of any one of these levers that we should be looking at. It is the aggregate effect of applying these levers uh, together. Um, so the pretrial detention, the charge stacking, the mandatory minimum, possible threats against a person's family and friends. It's the aggregate effect of all of these co coercive levers being brought to bear on an individual in in a concerted um, and sort of very unabashed effort to get them to spare the government the expense and inconvenience and risk of a jury trial and instead confess their guilt. Well, so are there changes you think we could make or um, shifts in the way we structure the plea bargaining system that would make it less coercive, that would limit the ability of prosecutors to force people's hands and to sort of improve plea bargaining so that it could kind of, at least in theory, potentially come closer to living up to the promise of being a sort of fair compromise between the government and the criminal defendant? Uh, not really. I don't think so. I think I think the best you can do is sort of manage it. I think one way to think about plea bargaining is that it's a kind of extremely aggressive cancer um, that uh, one of these forms that's very difficult to actually get rid of, the best you can do is kind of uh, beat it into some form of remission and, and just minimize its effect. Uh, another way to think, of course, of plea bargaining is I think of it as sort of the heroin or the fentanyl of the criminal justice system. Um, it's very, very difficult uh, to, uh, to get the system. The system is essentially addicted uh, to plea bargaining and more specifically to coercive plea bargaining. And so I think we have to be very realistic uh, in our assessment of the problem. Um, this is as bad a problem as a system can have. This is uh, literally course of plea bargaining is a cancer on the criminal justice system. Uh, now, I, I don't think that means that it's hopeless. And I think one of the most important things we can do to try to combat uh, course of plea bargaining, as suggested by the title of my article, is essentially to go back to a founding era version of the criminal jury trial. Uh, we've, we've completely transformed the criminal jury as an institution compared to what it was at the founding and what it was for more than 800 years of, of uh, Anglo common law before that. Um, essentially, the as, as Akhil Amar wrote in an article, the uh, modern American criminal jury trial is a pale shadow of itself. It is nothing what it, like what it used to be. Um, and one of the reasons, I think, why people are willing uh, to uh, give up uh, their right to a jury trial, in addition to the coercion that prosecutors have become so adept at applying, is that the institution or the procedure of a criminal jury trial is much less valuable now than it used to be uh, because judges and prosecutors have invented this myth of the criminal jury as merely and solely a fact-finding body. That is a remarkably recent and I would say even cynical invention. That's a myth. That's not the true role of a criminal jury trial um, in our system historically. Um, it's some simply a convenient myth that prosecutors and judges have invented and perpetrated. Well, so you're, in your paper, you talk about jury empowerment. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what that, what that means and sort of what the historical role of the jury was as compared to the role the jury is expected to play today. Sure. Well, historically in England, uh, juries, criminal juries seem to have been primarily sentencing bodies. Uh, there weren't nearly the the sort of volume of criminal prosecutions that we see in America today, and the crimes involved were not, you know, particularly complicated crimes. There were things like homicides, uh, armed robberies, arson, things like that. It was uh, seems to be some historical consensus that there generally wasn't that much doubt about the defendant's guilt. 
But the jury function is what you might call a sentencing body or more specifically an injustice preventing body. And what the main function of the English jury, criminal jury, was um, was to uh, prevent uh, convictions where the punishment that the government proposes to inflict would be unjust. Uh, most felonies in England up until the middle 1800s were capital, including property crimes above, I think, 40 shillings. And so uh, English juries, uh, which unlike American juries, would uh, provide their verdict, uh, they, would, they would give a special verdict. In other words, they would answer specific facts about the case. Uh, it was not uncommon for an English jury to answer those questions and to respond to that special verdict form in a way that would avoid uh, the, the imposition of, of capital uh, punishment if they felt that that would be unjust. This was not only a common but also a well-accepted function uh, of the jury uh, in England, and it seems to have been the case also at the founding uh, that uh, there was an understanding that not only a legitimate but indeed an extremely important function uh, of the criminal jury was to prevent tyranny, to prevent injustice by refusing to convict factually guilty defendants if the, the punishment that the government proposed to inflict would be unjust. That's really what we've lost. Uh, that, that was, I, I would say, a key feature um, of the founding era and uh, sort of, you know, uh, English pre-American criminal jury. And that's really what we've lost because judges and prosecutors go to extraordinary lengths to try to ensure that jurors are not aware that that's a legitimate function for jurors to play and to deprive them of the information that they would need in order to play that role. So in a nutshell, what I think would be extremely uh, beneficial in terms of ameliorating the effect of coercive plea bargaining would be a return to founding era informed juries. So, I mean, it's my impression that, you know, today, courts and prosecutors treat the idea that juries would question the legitimacy of a prosecution writ large or even question the legitimacy of a, you know, the underlying kind of criminal claim against someone, uh, you know, whether or not it's legitimate to prosecute someone for that as being sort of inappropriate or illegitimate itself. And they use a term like jury nullification. And whatnot. And yet it seems like it still happens sometimes. I mean, I'm thinking, like, for example, recently there was the fella who was acquitted uh, for giving food and water to um, undocumented migrants at the Texas border, where it seems like the factual elements were proven and yet the jury acquitted him anyway, which seems like a version of of nullification, like how, how did that shift happen? How did it go from a jury that was expected to judge the legitimacy of punishment and of criminal prosecution to a jury that was discouraged from doing that, or even like to the best of their ability, like prohibited from doing that? Yeah, it's a great point. And the, the, the man was named Scott Warren. Uh, DOJ prosecuted him twice for, for providing aid to migrants uh, in the Arizona desert. The first time the jury deadlocked, the second time they acquitted, despite the fact that he is rather clearly factually guilty. That's a perfect example of so-called jury nullification. By the way, I don't use that term because it is pejorative um, and, and inaccurate. Juries don't have the ability to nullify anything. Um, all they can do is acquit a particular defendant in a particular case. And so I think a more accurate description is conscientious acquittal. But putting aside the terminology, uh, the, the idea – so the, the, the America, America's legal system has a really, frankly, kind of schizophrenic 
uh, attitude towards uh, so-called jury nullification. On the one hand, the Supreme Court has consistently acknowledged that it is a legitimate uh, feature of the system and that uh, jurors uh, must never be told that they cannot do it and uh, must never be told that, uh, that there could be any consequences if they did it. On the other hand, the, the Supreme Court has made clear that uh, they, they should be discouraged in every other possible way from doing it, and it is perfectly permissible to discourage them from doing it, both by suggesting to them that it would be inappropriate, uh, by, uh, trying, by making sure that the defense counsel never gets to mention the concept of jury nullification. So there's this kind of interesting uh, tension within American jurisprudence. On the one hand, there is a recognition of the fundamental uh, legitimacy of so-called jury nullification, but also um, a concerted uh, effort on the part of uh, judges and prosecutors uh, to ensure that juries remain ignorant uh, of that uh, institution uh, and to give prosecutors as much leeway as possible to ensure that anyone who believes uh, in jury nullification, for example, and avows that belief um, will not be seated on a jury. Um, I think that is uh, utterly unprincipled and utterly inconsistent with founding era practice. Uh, but it's it's essentially it's sort of evolved more or less organically. There's not some decision where the Supreme Court or any other court, you know, kind of confronts all of this uh, and says, you know, sort of thinking this through and considering all of the uh, relevant arguments, uh, both uh, historical policy and otherwise. Here's our conclusion. Here's our conclusion about what we want the system to look like. Um, instead, it really is just essentially. Um, the system kind of organically uh, evolving in, in, in the direction of a very strong government preference for a system uh, where uh, the jury will be relatively less valuable to defendants than it was at the founding era, uh, thereby making them relatively more amenable uh, to uh, pressure to forego the jury trial and simply plead guilty, because that really is the ultimate goal of the American criminal justice system at this point, is efficiency and to process as many uh, uh, criminal prosecutions through the system as possible. And the only way to do that is is with plea bargaining. Mm. Well, so I know that some people, at least, and certainly courts and prosecutors are critical of jury nullification or, you know, uh, uh, principled acquittal, conscientious acquittal, um, for a range of reasons. Do, do you think any of those reasons for being critical have any purchase? And if not, why not? Well, I mean, look, the, the, the process of adjudicating guilt in a criminal case is an inherently imperfect one, uh, necessarily, because it's a human process. All human processes will be uh, imperfect. So it really is, it comes down to a question of pick your uh, you know, suite of imperfections. Uh, so I'm not certainly not saying that I think that that a, a criminal jury that has been informed of the uh, the sort of the history of conscientious acquittal and let's say the consequences for the defendant if they convict in the particular case that they're that they're impaneled for. I'm not saying I think that's a perfect system. It certainly has some challenges, and I can talk about some of those. But the real question is compared to what, and if the question is. Which is more desirable, what I just described, or a system in which prosecutors have free reign to bring uh, whatever coercive levers are necessary to bear uh, in unreviewable uh, fashion uh, to defendants to get them to plead guilty? I just don't think it's a close call. That being said, um, there there's certainly um, uh, we, we've seen results that are that are sort of difficult to stomach, and I would say a pretty good example of of acquittals against the law, or maybe a better way to put it would be um, acquittals of 
defendants who appear to be factually guilty that I personally find objectionable um, is when uh, juries acquit police officers who've rather clearly uh, abused their authority, uh, have uh, harmed people or even killed people without legal justification. It's very difficult uh, to convict a police officer for the excessive use of force. And we see that time and time again. Uh, the um, Michael Slager, the, uh, I'm sorry, um, uh, the, the police officer who uh, shot uh, Michael Scott in North Carolina, South Carolina, um, Slager, I forget his first name. Um, a lot of people don't realize that before he was, before he pled guilty uh, in federal court, uh, he had a state court prosecution where his jury deadlocked, notwithstanding the fact that he was on video shooting a man eight times in the back. So that to me would be an undesirable uh, example of a jury failing to acquit or failing to convict a factually guilty defendant. But again, we need to think about the question compared to what and in terms of the net effect. So yes, it's certainly the case that uh, a jury that has been informed of its power to uh, acquit against the evidence, to engage in conscientious acquittal, may occasionally allow uh, a guilty person to go free who on balance should have been convicted and punished. But I think it much more often cuts the other way, namely that uh, properly informed juries are much more likely to uh, protect people from uh, unjust punishments. So let me give you one example. There's an article in, the, in, in New Orleans a few weeks ago where uh, prosecutors had to reduce charges against somebody who they were trying to prosecute for a distribution of marijuana because they were unable to impanel a jury that would agree to convict that person. So in other words, people during Mardir were saying, uh, if you prove all those elements of the crime of distribution of marijuana, I still won't vote to convict this person, basically, because I think that's a ridiculous thing to be prosecuting somebody for. That's exactly the kind of feedback that our system intended for prosecutors to receive from the community. And by breaking that feedback loop, which they have done by practically eliminating the criminal jury trial, they've really uh, destroyed this extraordinarily important channel of information uh, that was intended to inform not only prosecutors, but legislators, what kinds of activity or conduct. Uh, ordinary people think that the government should or shouldn't be prosecuting. Mm. Well, so in a way for me, there's a certain sort of back to the future quality to what you're proposing in the sense that it's like looking back to how things used to be done and saying, boy, we really made a terrible mistake at some point in time by losing this kind of institutional check on, on government power. But like as a practical matter, how do we kind of revitalize or return to that kind of principle? I mean, like to your mind, if we were going to move in this direction, how would we implement it most effectively? Well, the good news is that that the entire system that we have now depend, depends on the systematic uh, suppression of information and in fact of factually accurate information uh, and our system is not well set up for that. And our history indicates that anytime the government thinks that um, some policy uh, requires the suppression of factually truthful information, they're almost always wrong. And this is a great example of that. Let me just give you one concrete example. There's a trial going on, a federal uh, prosecution in Connecticut, where the defendant is looking at a mandatory minimum of 15 years uh, for for um, a crime that is you know right there in the United States Code. Anybody could look it up in 10 or 15 seconds and ascertain that there is a mandatory minimum of 15 years for this particular crime. Um, when his defense counsel uh, asked the judge to uh, consider informing the jury that the defendant was looking at a 15-year mandatory minimum if the jury voted to convict, 
the DOJ prosecution team collectively lost their mind. They panicked and immediately uh, filed a motion to stay the trial and sought a mandamus petition in the Second Circuit. Think about how strange that is. The prosecutors in this case are desperate to prevent a jury from knowing what the government already publicly proclaims and is ascertainable to any American with an internet connection in 10 or 15 seconds, namely what the federal government's position is uh, as far as what the punishment should be for this particular conduct. When you have a prosecution team that is desperate to deprive a jury of that information, I think that should really uh, you know, be a signal that there's something very concerning going on here. So the answer to your question is what can be done is quite simple. Uh, at the defendant's option, in a criminal prosecution, the jury should be advised what the consequences will be for the defendant if they convict, not just the punishment that the government proposes, the formal punishment, but also any collateral consequences like the loss of civil rights or possible deportation. And the basic, the basic point here would be that um, we should go back to the founding era. And it's not just the founding era. I mean, this really does go back centuries uh, in English history. Go back to a mindset where the government not only in a criminal prosecution, the government not only should have to make the factual case for guilt, uh, but also the moral case for the particular punishment that they seek to inflict. And if the government can't do both of those things, then that's a pretty strong indication that that's a case should, that should never have been prosecuted in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. So, Clark, I know you're working on a lot of other criminal justice reform-related projects. I wonder if you could talk briefly about some of those and what they're intended to accomplish. Well, thanks for that opportunity. I, uh, I, I, I will say this. Um, I've come to the conclusion that the criminal justice system in America is so uh, profoundly broken and so deeply uh, pathological that it really can't be reformed in any meaningful sense of the word. It, 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 it frankly has to be reset. Uh, and, and the problems that are in the system and the injustices are, I think, so profound that uh, it's just not a matter of sort of tinkering around the edges, which is all that we've been doing um, for the past however long. Um, so I think that we really need to think about some fairly radical uh, uh, changes. And one change that I'd like to see, and I'm actually working on this as a kind of a passion project on my own time, um, is treating uh, any involuntary encounter with law enforcement as a genuinely hazardous situation akin to uh, you know, a traffic accident or something like that. Uh, police have become so adept at uh, getting people to give up their valuable constitutional rights, their right to be uh, free from uh, uh, unconsented warrantless searches, um, their right not to answer potentially inculpatory questions and so forth. Uh, police are so adept uh, these days at overcoming those rights that I think really nobody should ever uh, speak to a police officer in an involuntary encounter without access to counsel. So um, I'm trying to figure out a way to provide free live legal representation to everybody who wants it um, during any involuntary encounter uh, with law enforcement. And one of the reasons I think that's so important is that if you talk to any criminal defense attorney and ask them what percentage of your clients have already fatally impaired their own defense or their own case before you ever meet them, uh, in my experience, the consensus figure is anywhere between 50 and 80 percent. So we've we've allowed a system to arise essentially where uh, government agents are are either kind of cajoling or tricking or intimidating people into uh, giving up valuable constitutional rights that makes it virtually impossible to defend them later on down the road. I'd also like to see um, the end of cash bail. I think that could have been achieved. And, I, and most of my solutions, by the way, most of my proposals come from outside the system. Um, I believe the system is fundamentally recalcitrant and unwilling to change. And so change needs to be imposed from outside, not requested. So another possibility would be to have philanthropists put up bail money 
for people who can't afford it and to systematically uh, uh, through philanthropy ensure uh, that uh, no person who's eligible for cash bail remains locked up just because they can't put up the money. I would also revitalize public defender's offices. The mindset of most public defender's offices is that they're there to negotiate pleas for most of their clients. I understand why that has to happen. Um, I think we should radically transform that. I want to see the mindset of every public defender's office to be that uh, they will provide the most zealous defense possible uh, for each and every one of their clients, and they need vastly more resources to do that. Again, that could be partly a matter of private philanthropy. And as we discussed a moment ago, I think uh, another important piece of the puzzle is to ensure uh, that people serving on juries are properly and fully informed about not only what the government's trying to do to the defendant in a particular case by way of imposing punishment, but also what techniques they've engaged in in an effort to get that person to plead guilty, um, what kinds of levers they've applied, what kinds of threats they've made. The government should have to acknowledge its uh, conduct in that regard during trial and justify it. And I'm told that in, in England and some other countries, that's actually a part of the process, that the government has to answer uh, for its investigative and prosecutorial uh, techniques that it has engaged in in that case. And I think that would uh, impose significant discipline on the conduct of police and prosecutors in many cases if they knew that they would one day have to go in front of a jury of 12 people and own up uh, to the investigative techniques that they used and the efforts that they've made to induce a plea. Um, and if they're confident that those efforts were non-coercive and legitimate, then they shouldn't have any problems saying to a jury, yep, this is what I did. I think the reason they may be uncomfortable sharing that information with the jury is they understand that it may um, be deeply offensive to some juries if they find out, for example, that this prosecutor threatened a person's family if the person wouldn't plead guilty. As I say, I think it's really important that they own up to that. And if they think that might look bad later on down the road, that might cause them to stop doing that kind of stuff and stop applying so many coercive levers. Yeah. Awesome. Well, Clark, thanks so much for coming on the show. And I can't tell you how much I admire the important work you're doing in this area. Will you please stand? First, allow me to introduce myself. My name is Judge Hundred Years. Some people call me Judge Dredd. Now, I am from Ethiopia. Try hard, you rude boys, for shooting black people. In my court, on the beat top. Cause I'm Bex, and I am the rude boy today. Who got Bex? Yes, sir. Rude boy Adolphus Jakes. Yes, sir. Rude boy Emmanuel Zachariah Zaki Palm. Yes, sir. George Robin Free. Present. <laughs> Adolphus James. Yes, sir. I see where you have been charged. Ten children with intent. Five murder charge. Six grab and flee charge. What you are not? Wash up. Guilty or not guilty? Not guilty, sir. I don't care what they say. Take 400 years. Stand down. Emmanuel Zachariah Zakipam. Yes, sir. You've been charged. 15 charge of shooting intent. 15 murder charge. And I heard that you was the one 
down there in Sutton Street who tell the judge, good boys don't care. Well, this is King Street, and my name is Judge Dredd, and I don't care. Now take 400 years. Hush up, what they try to do, shoot me too? No, you're not, but I didn't shoot him. Well, quiet. 400 more years for you. George, grab and flee. Yes, sir. Stop your crying. Good boys don't cry, that's what I hear. I didn't read you, no, sir. I'm free, I don't hear. Hush up. This is my court. You're charged for robbing school children, robbery, aggravation. Man, I take my sentence and see you, know, you know, man, you know. I to just come and come try, you know, and I take my sentence for you, know, sir. Oh, sure. Yes, sir. You rob school children. You boom the people's house. You shot black people. Hush up! Just for talking, I know charge you for contempt, and that is a separate hundred years. I hereby sentence you to four hundred years. I said, hush up, hush up! You are sentenced to four hundred years and five hundred lashes. I am going to set an example. I, good boys, don't cry, don't cry. When I was in Africa, I hear you were tough. Put a turn, take him away. 